Hello and welcome to the Spine Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hovez. And my name is Dr. Nicholas Carvelis. And today we are going to start a new series. We are going to be starting a podcast journal club. Um, I think we've dove deep into topics and kind of spent a long amount of time kind of going through a lot of different aspects of uh, certain topics. But we wanted to create something where as new studies were entering into uh, medical literature that we can kind of quickly review them and um, have a pathway for people to kind of know about some of the newer things that are coming out. So we're going to get us started. We're going to actually talk about three studies today um, that all have to do with uh, medication management of some of our chronic pain patients. So Dr. K, you want to introduce that first study for us? Yeah, in a little bit of our format here, we will for each article, uh, we'll do our, we will do our best to briefly uh, summarize the article, and then Dr. Hovez and myself will uh, uh, try to concisely talk about how the, um, the, the main results of the study may impact what we do with our patients uh, clinically. And so we'll try to do that for each one of the studies. And um, uh, for specifically for this uh, episode, um, because we're dealing with medications, we'll just briefly review, you know, what the medication is and it, it, its mechanism of action before we jump into the uh, study as well. So the first article we wanted to take a look at, and and we will include all of these articles at the end uh, in the show notes so that we can, uh, so you may reference them. But the first article uh, is titled "Topiramate Prevents uh, Oxaliplatin-Related Axonal." hyperexcitability and oxaliplatin-induced uh, peripheral neurotoxicity. Uh, this was published in Neuropharmacology in 2020. And so essentially you can tell from the title that this article addresses uh, topiramate's impact on chemotherapy-induced uh, uh, neuropathy. And uh, with this chem chemotherapy agent, uh, a chemotherapy agent uh, typically used or commonly used to treat cancers, uh, especially GI cancers like colorectal uh, cancer. So as I mentioned, we're, we'll go over each medication and its mechanism of action. So topiramate, as we all know, is a sodium channel modulator. Um, it's often you know, considered third or fourth line, uh, depending on what uh, uh, guidelines you're looking at in terms of treatment for neuropathic uh, pain conditions. Obvious ex exceptions in terms of sodium, sodium channel block uh, modulators for uh, neuropathic pain conditions in terms of when it would be considered a first-line agent would be trigeminal neuralgia, uh, where carbamazepine would be considered first-line. But for the most part, sodium channel blockers are going to be a little bit uh, further down the algorithm in terms of consideration of treatment for neuropathic pain conditions. Um, in terms of the mechanism of action for uh, topiramate, um, uh, especially when we're thinking about uh, treatment of chemo-induced chemo peripheral neuropathy, which was the focus of this article, Interestingly, one of the uh, major uh, mechanisms of action is that it uh, obviously modulates the sodium channel, but the reason that's important is because it's inhibiting this persistent pathological uh, sodium channel activation and sodium current, um, that's actually going to have a downstream effect of uh, preventing the buildup of intracellular calcium, which we know uh, from uh, in, uh, uh, increased or pathological levels of intracellular calcium is one of the main uh, pathophysiologies of uh, developing uh, neuropathy, peripheral neuropathy in the setting of uh, uh, chemotherapy-induced neuropathy. So, so quickly, some other hypothesized mechanism of action of uh, topiramate in this setting, and I think 
it's um, important to go over these just to show that although, yes, we think of topiramate as a sodium channel modulator, um, research would suggest that's not its only mechanism of action, and that's important because that's potentially one of the reasons that it uh, uh, can have such a positive impact in these uh, specific patients who are dealing with neuropathic pain in the setting of cancer and the treatments. So some other hypothesized mechanisms of action for topiramate aside from sodium channel modulation include action on uh, L-type calcium channels, uh, inhibition of glutamate activity, and enhancement of GABA, uh, uh, GABA activity, which uh, is a very common theme for a lot of our medications treating chronic pain in terms of uh, uh, inhibiting glutamate activity and uh, enhancing GABA activity. Um, and then lastly, modulation of voltage-gated uh, potassium channels. So uh, uh, one key point before we jump into the article, and, and, I, and I know this is becoming more and more of, of a, a, a common knowledge, but just it's important to reemphasize that you know, as all these amazing advances and so much credit to the researchers and to the oncologists uh, who've uh, made this possible, um, but as so much progress is made in terms of uh, improving um, uh, treatment of cancer, the number of cancer survivors obviously is going to increase. And as a consequence, the number of patients living with chronic pain related to either the cancer itself or the treatments to uh, the, the treatments of the cancer, including obviously uh, chemo-induced neuropathy, that number is going to be drastically increasing. So then that makes uh, treatments or considerations like topiramate even more uh, relevant as we uh, move forward here and the number of cancer survivors increase. So uh, quickly for the study itself. So in this article, uh, the authors were investigating topiramate's impact on uh, chemotherapy uh, uh, chemotherapy, specifically, as we mentioned, oxaloplatin-induced neuropathy, using an animal model and using both an acute model uh, with a one-time dose of chemotherapy as well as a chronic model that completed the entire course of chemotherapy. And the, the study, uh, which I thought was really interesting and, and, and uh, well-designed, the study utilized not only nerve conduction testing, but also behavioral me measures, including a PA withdrawal threshold uh, and morphological analysis. They actually uh, dissected the nerves and, and evaluated uh, nerve fiber density. And essentially what they demonstrated was that topiramate prevented the acute chemotherapy-induced neurotoxicity, but also, and more uh, applicable for the majority of us, uh, you know, treating these patients chronically, is that topiramate had a positive effect on the chronic uh, chemotherapy-induced neuropathy as well. So that was just to uh, summarize topiramate and the study. And then, you know, in terms of how this would impact our um, uh, clinical approach, uh, I'll, I'll just uh, start off and then turn it over to Dr. Hovez. But I think for myself, I've I've really started to look at sodium channel blockers whenever I have a patient that uh, has a diagnosis of cancer and is undergoing treatment for multiple reasons. And, and we won't delve into this in too much detail, but I think we've brought this up in the past, but there are definitely interesting studies, especially when looking at solid tumors and especially when looking at uh, gynecologic uh, uh, tumors like uh, ovarian cancer, uh, that sodium channel blockers can actually have a positive, some level of positive impact on the uh, progression of uh, the cancer itself. And so I, I've kind of, along those lines, I've kind of always thought of sodium channel blockers. And of course, and I always uh, make sure I emphasize this to the patient and I emphasize it to the other care providers, including the oncologists, is I'm not by any stretch of the imagination 
thinking I'm treating the cancer by utilizing this medication. My, my purpose is, okay, I know this patient has pain. They probably have difficulty sleeping, um, and they may have some level of neuropathic pain, which is unfortunately common in cancer patients. So I know topiramate can be sedating, uh, so using it at nighttime can help with sleep. I know that topiramate is a sodium channel blocker that should have a positive impact on nerve pain. And I know that there's some data such to suggest the possibility of a positive impact on the cancer progression. And so that's why I've always kind of thought of sodium channel blockers in the cancer setting, um, especially for solid tumors, as I mentioned. But then this would just kind of add to that picture, especially for our patients that are undergoing chemotherapy. You know, they may already have cancer-associated pain, so even more reason to consider topiramate because, like I said, if you're starting about if you're thinking about starting chemotherapy, um, this would this would suggest that that topiramate would then uh, potentially help prevent the uh, toxicity associated with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the really interesting part about this was looking at it from the preventative measure, right? I mean, we, you know, we talk about topiramate as an option. What by the time patients come to see us, um, and by the time that they've already had you know this significant pain that's affected them to the point that they need to see a pain specialist. But now we have, you know, granted, in animal model um, study only, but, you know, it does have some impact on do you start thinking about this, you know, we're going to we're gonna uh, induce chemotherapy, do we start this medication uh, right off the bat? I mean, I think those, are, you know, with a study like this, I think it's very easy to see that that's a study that's likely to happen in the, in the future, uh, testing that out on or starting it on patients as we're starting uh, chemotherapy for them to be able to kind of hopefully prevent some of the uh, acute toxicity like we were saying so you know the acute to toxicity is actually one of the reasons why some people can't continue and tolerate uh, the chemotherapy but also uh, some of the uh, more chronic problems that you know the patients uh, eventually come to see us for um, and so hopefully this will be something that we can use kind of much more on, on the earlier end for the preventative side and so hopefully as uh, things progress over the next couple of years, we'll start to see this in uh, in human studies also. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so then to the next study. So uh, moving on to uh, uh, the, lo uh, the low-dose naltrexone in regards to uh, treatment of fibromyalgia. So the title of this article was uh, Low-Dose Naltrexone for the Treatment of Fibromyalgia Investigation of Dose-Response uh, Relationships. And this was published in Pain Medicine in uh, 2020 as well. And so again, just briefly in terms of low-dose naltrexone and its mechanism of action. So as we know, low-dose naltrexone is a lower dose of the medication that we may be more familiar with, naltrexone. And as we know, naltrexone at its typical dose is an opioid receptor antagonist. But at the lower doses, which are typically about one-tenth of the typical dose, um, there is a proven paradoxical positive impact on uh, chronic pain. And uh, research has demonstrated this uh, positive impact on difficult-to-treat pain conditions, including uh, but not limited to fibromyalgia and even uh, CRPS. The, now, um, and I would say the data is probably most robust at this point for uh, fibromyalgia. Now, in terms of the mechanism of action of low-dose naltrexone, there's really two main hypotheses, um, and we're continuing to, like many things in medicine, continuing to understand the, the uh, full mechanism of action. But um, number one, uh, modulation of microglial cells, specifically through this receptor called the toll-like receptor 4, which essentially leads to a potent anti-inflammatory effect and a positive impact on central sensitization. And then the second mechanism of action is a uh, positive impact on the endogenous uh, opioid system. 
So in terms of this study itself, uh, fairly brief uh, uh, in terms of overall summary here, but you know, based on the available literature leading up to this study, we had all, always kind of thought of 4.5 milligrams as the dose to consider for low-dose naltrexone in, in terms of treating chronic pain processes, including fibromyalgia. Um, but there hadn't really been studies uh, looking at a range of doses and determining, okay, 4.5, you know, based on the randomized controlled trials that were available, uh, seems like a good starting dose, but has this really been investigated? So this uh, study, you know, has started that process. I think um, as they uh, highlight at the end as well, you know, further work needs to be done with greater power and and uh, uh, and potentially even different ranges. But, but bottom line, this was a step in a good direction in terms of looking at a dose range. And so Obviously, the purpose of the study was to evaluate dose-response relationship. The doses were between 0.75 to 6 milligrams, and they were evaluated uh, among uh, 27 subjects using the up-down method, which I will not get into in uh, too, de too much detail here, but essentially what that allows is the dose to shift direction 10 times with a goal of finding the ED50 and the ED95, essentially the estimated dose that 50% of uh, uh, subjects would respond to the treatment, and the estimated dose where 95% of subjects would respond to the treatment. So what they determined those values to be were 3.88 milligrams and uh, 5.40 milligrams. So sorry, 3.88 and 5.40 milligrams for the ED50 and ED95 respectively. And so quickly in terms of the clinical application of that, uh, um, the ultimately it, it kind of confirmed essentially um, our typical way of thinking about it in terms of, okay, 4.5 might be that uh, optimal dose to treat these chronic pain patients. Um, and and the, I think the one thing that I took from this is that in this study, there really wasn't adverse effects seen up to those uh, doses of uh, especially five and a half milligrams or even six milligrams. Because I think, you know, based on my training and the articles I had read, I was pretty hesitant to ever go above 4.5 milligrams. So you know, when I think about treating these patients, I generally do start below 4.5 milligrams, maybe 1.5 or 2 or 2.5 milligrams, depending on the patient, and then gradually work my way up and uh, potentially in 0.5 or 1 milligrams to that goal dose of 4.5. But um, so I think, as I said, this study probably confirmed that. And then uh, if, if one thing it added is a little bit more um, confidence in terms of titrating up a little bit above that 4.5 milligram uh, dose. Yeah, and so I think some of the takeaways also to think about or maybe um, some explanation for this study when people who may or may not prescribe this medication, it is a compounded medication. And so the reason why we're talking about such small dose increments is because as you're compounding it, you can compound it to different formulations. Um, so that does have an impact on kind of where uh, how or how you're kind of uh, titrating the medication. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like you said, the, the main takeaways are tolerability uh, and the dose that we assumed was right, at least in this very low powered, uh, you know, uh, introductory study uh, seems to be uh, uh, something that is uh, the ideal place to aim for. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so the last study uh, to take a look at was in regards to buprenorphine. And um, I know we've talked about buprenorphine a few times in the past, uh, but uh, this, I, I thought this was a good article because, you know, it, it was um, uh, essentially an expert opinion. So, you know, multiple individuals that have 
uh, dedicated a lot of their careers and put in a lot of times and a lot of time in terms of understanding this medication and they came together to create some consensus statements so this was published in pain medicine again recently uh, in January of 2020 Dr. Uh, do you think that they listened to our last episode of buprenorphine for your take and then translated that into this article <laughs> probably not but <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> unlikely but uh, <laughs> So, yeah, and the title of this, this article was Understanding Buprenorphine for Use in Chronic Pain, Expert Opinion. And so there was multiple consensus statements in this uh, article. Um, we'll just highlight a couple, but again, sorry, before I jump into that, just a, a quick review of buprenorphine itself. So as we know, buprenorphine is a semi-synthetic opioid which is a partial agonist at the mu opioid receptor and a full agonist at the opioid receptor like one or ORL1 receptor. And those are really, uh, in terms of analgesia, those are the two receptors that are probably playing the biggest uh, role um, in terms of buprenorphine's action on those receptors. And then it's also a potent antagonist at the delta and kappa op uh, uh, opioid receptors. And the reason that's important is because its antagonist action at those receptors is really thought to have multiple positive effects, including uh, decreasing constipation, decreasing abuse potential, and uh, treating uh, depre depressed mood or depression rather than potentially exacerbating it like many other uh, full mu opioids would. Um, as we know, buprenorphine has FDA approval for treatment of chronic pain, uh, uh, specifically for the transdermal and the buccal formulations. Uh, for, so essentially for butrans, the transdermal, and then Belbuca, the uh, uh, buccal formulation. And I uh, should state, uh, state that this consensus um, uh, opinion, the, the, this expert opinion, is specifically in regards to the on-label uh, on use of uh, uh, buprenorphine for chronic pain. So when they're making these statements as they will um, uh, as, as they uh, say in the article, they're largely referring to the use of Belbuca and to Butrans. And how you extrapolate that to the off-label use of Subutex or, or Suboxone for chronic pain, we won't d uh, dive into too much, um, uh, especially when we re review the article. But like I said, this is largely to do with uh, Butrans and Belbuca, which are FDA approved for treatment of chronic pain. So the purpose of the study was to create expert opinion in regards to certain key points uh, for buprenorphine. And like I said, they had multiple uh, consensus statements, but the two I wanted to highlight was uh, one, um, in regards to uh, buprenorphine's uh, consideration as a partial um, uh, opioid uh, agonist. So their, their, what they wanted to highlight in their consensus statement was that due to buprenorphine's unique pharmacology, including its high binding affinity, but relatively uh, decreased intrinsic activity at the activity at the mu opioid receptor and its unique action in other receptors, including what we had brought up before, the ORL1, delta, and kappa receptors, they, uh, their statement is that buprenorphine has similar or greater efficacy and anti-hyperalgesic effects relative to full mu opioids for chronic pain. Their, uh, the, their second key point that I wanted to emphasize was in regards to how to transition. Um, from a full mu opioid to buprenorphine. So the expert uh, opinion in regards to how patients should be converted from a full mu opioid uh, receptor to uh, buprenorphine uh, include the following key points. So um, number one, maintaining adequate analgesia and avoiding withdrawal symptoms should be the main priority. Now it's very, we'll come back to that statement, but that's a very different, uh, I think, consideration than what we've had in the past. 
And then um, uh, the, the second um, uh, key point that the authors wanted to uh, bring up in regards to how to make this conversion was that, of course, you're going to be using clinical judgment to individualize each conversion, but some general uh, guidelines in terms of how to, how to do this conversion, and they were specific for uh, less than or equal to 90 oromorphine equivalents and then greater to or equal to 90 oromorphine equivalents. So essentially for less than or equal to 90 oromorphine equivalents, they recommended stopping the full mu opioid the uh, evening prior to your transition. Um, so you essentially could take that last dose of the, um, of the long-acting or the short-acting uh, opioid on that day before you transition to buprenorphine. But then uh, uh, consider starting an alpha-2 agonist, such as clonidine, on that day or even a few days prior, and then uh, initiate buprenorphine the following morning. And for less than or equal to 90 oromorphine equivalents, they recommended 150 mics uh, belbuca every 12 hours or the 10 mic per hour uh, butrans patch. And the other uh, uh, key points that they brought up was that, especially early on during that first month, uh, consider use of a short-acting as needed full, full mu opioid for breakthrough pain uh, while determining that optimal dose of buprenorphine. And I would just interject as well that while waiting for buprenorphine to really start to have its full impact, because there's multiple studies showing that the response rate uh, may be uh, you know, closer to around 25% to 35 to 30% for uh, patients in that first uh, week or so, but then the response rate goes up over 80% uh, after a month. So number one, while trying to find that optimal dose, but also while letting buprenorphine have its full uh, impact in terms of the chronic severe pain, uh, uh, you may utilize some as-needed um, uh, opioids. And, and um, real quickly along those lines, there's, there's a, a very interesting table in that um, in this article that I think is worthwhile uh, bringing up because they demonstrate that that uh, even with fairly high doses of buprenorphine, there's still uh, mu opioid receptors available. Um, and so uh, if, if you were to look at the article, it's on page 719, but essentially it shows at different uh, doses, including just as an example, so at two milligrams of buprenorphine, about 59% of mu opioid receptors are still available. At 16 milligrams of buprenorphine, so that, that's you know a fairly significant dose of oral buprenorphine, and that's you know the the buccal and transdermal are not going to get anywhere close to that type of a dose, but you still have about 20% of full 20% uh, uh, of mu opioid receptors available, and even at 32 milligrams of buprenorphine, which I haven't really ever had a patient higher than that, you're still you still have availability of mu uh, receptors, and so I think that's just a a, a good a point to bring up in terms of the consideration of using breakthrough uh, opioid medications when on Belbuca or Butrans. And so for patients over 90 oral morphine equivalents, they, the recommendations were pretty much the same in terms of when to stop and when to start and to use the alpha-2 agonist, but the only change was the dose of the uh, buprenorphine that you start with. So rather than 150 mics of Belbuca, uh, it was 300 mics, and then rather than a 10 mic per hour patch, it was a 20 mic per hour patch. Um, so real quickly, in terms of our you know clinical application of this, um, I, I think the reason I brought up these these two uh, main points, and I, I guess I'll focus on the second one, was that uh, I think when transitioning to buprenorphine, the uh, the approach that we've taken maybe historically has been to have the patients go into some level of uh, mild withdrawal and showing mild withdrawal symptoms before initiating the treatment, but you know. Um, 
uh, from this uh, expert opinion and consensus statement, the suggestion would be more that we can make this you know, conversion as long as we do the calculations correctly and potentially with the aid of a alpha-2 agonist, we can make this uh, conversion without having to, um, or essentially as they emphasize, while maintaining adequate analgesia and avoiding withdrawal, which may ultimately lead to better uh, compliance and a better outcome uh, for the for the patients. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that they um, made a particular point throughout the the paper to to note was that you know buprenorphine shows similar uh, or maybe even superior analgesic effect uh, to full mu opioid receptors, right? And I think that is not the common perception for buprenorphine. Um, you know, I, I know we had talked about this before, and I think you might have even alluded to this earlier, but I want to make sure that we're kind of emphasizing this fact. Partial agonist of the mu opioid receptor does not mean partial analgesic effect, right? right? And yeah. I, know, I know that you said that exact statement, but like that's, that's a very important thing for not just us and not just, you know, the people within our team, but primary care doctors and, 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 and patients to understand that the analgesic effects of a partial mu agonist are still as good and in some studies superior to a full mu agonist. We just get them on the right receptors that are not gonna be causing the ill effects of uh, the opioid receptor, right? So we're not gonna get the, that increased constipation. We're not gonna get the, um, the high risks of re respiratory depression. We're gonna be able to calm uh, those major complications down while still getting similar analgesic effect, which is essentially our goal with treating with these medications, right? Is to provide analgesia. Um, and so I think those, especially with the, the number of times that they've said that throughout this study, I think those are the, that's a really big point to hammer home to people who may or may not have buprenorphine within their practice or, you know, might not be something that they reach to very regularly. Um, I know we've brought this up in our prior discussions on buprenorphine. You know, this is, it's a medication that we have, you know, very strongly you know, tried to utilize and transition patients to within our practice. Um, because of these effects, uh, this data, right? Because of the things that they brought up in this statement of, you know, it does provide analgesia for patients. And like you described, it does take some time. Um, we have to have patience with it. We have to be able to, to coach our patients through it. Um, but it does have a very good analgesic effect with a very, um, a better, I should say a very, a better risk profile. Yeah. And and you know one of the uh, when the when they make their statement about which uh, Dr. Hovis did an awesome job of um, emphasizing it and when they make their statement of analgesia, um, one of the things they often pair with that is anti-hyperalgesic effects, and I think that's a critical point too because you know one of the things we constantly worry about with our patients with our Fulmi opioids is is the issues with tolerance and having to dose escalate and then now do we are we actually lowering the pain threshold and now are you know do we have them in a hyperalgesic uh, state and uh, at least based upon the available data that we have again because of its unique uh, 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 pharmacology and how it's interacting with the receptors inclu including that uh, delta and kappa uh, antagonistic activity uh, we're actually starting to reverse some of that hyperalgesia and that's uh, been shown in multiple studies including including animal model studies with um, uh, Paul withdrawal and uh, you know measuring allodynia or hyperalgesia but the bottom line being that rather than potentially you know causing or contributing to uh, you know that what we always worry about in terms of centralization or peripherals peripheral or central sensitization or wind up or however we want to describe it um, 
uh, we actually may be reversing that uh, to some degree or at least preventing it from getting worse. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for leading us through these uh, three studies. Um, hopefully, this will be something that everybody finds valuable. I think if we can kind of run through three recent uh, articles in you know less than half an hour, um, I think we sound better at one and a half to two times speed. So if you can get through this in 15 to 20 minutes, uh, hopefully it's valuable for you. Please reach out to us. Let us know what you think. Um, give us some ideas or some things that you would like us to dive into. We would definitely be uh, open uh, to hearing what people uh, would find valuable uh, in the content that we're providing. Uh, and stay tuned for those legal disclaimers. Now for that legal disclaimer, this podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. If anything discussed may pertain to you, please seek counsel with your healthcare provider. The views expressed are those of the individuals expressing them. They may not represent the views of Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center.